Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of Wings for Breakfast, our twice-weekly Red Wings podcast here on The Athletic. I am Max Boltman, with me as always is Prashant Iyer. How are you doing, Prashant? Doing pretty well, can't complain. It's a, it's a lovely weekend down here. It's almost 90 degrees in North Carolina today. It is uh, not quite that nice in Detroit, but nonetheless, it doesn't matter because nobody's going outside. That's fair enough. Yeah, we're about to be on a, uh, a lockdown starting Monday at 5 p.m., so uh, say goodbye to the outside, although I'm, I'm enjoying the heat uh, right now radiating through the windows. Well, one of the things that I have done since being inside is I spent the morning uh, re-watching the famous Fight Night game from 1997. Well, not re-watching. It's the first time I've ever seen it. Uh, I've obviously seen the highlights of the brawls, but the actual game itself. So it was interesting to see that there were actual goals scored in that game. That was not something I had been aware of. I mean, that's the thing. Like, This is for a Red Wings fan, and I think most Red Wings fans right now were kind of born out of this game and this rivalry. This is really what cemented a lot of the Wings fans because if you look through the Red Wings history, and really this is just the way sports go, right? When teams win, you build fans. When teams lose, you lose fans. And and if you look at the Red Wings history, you really had the chunk in the in the 40s when the team was really good. You had, you know, Sid Abel, Del Vecchio, you know, Howe, Lindsey, that team. And you had the fans that were born out of kind of the 40s, 50s, 60s, that era. And then you have the fans that are born out of the 90s when the Wings finally win that first cup in 42 years in 1997. And for a lot of the fans that are born out of the 90s, this game, this rivalry, this is what cemented their fandom with the Red Wings. So I'm glad you finally got to, to see the full game because I think a lot of people focus in on the brawls but realize this game had incredible significance it was one of the best games I think I've ever seen. And without a doubt, when you're watching this on TV, and big uh, big shout out to Scott Pizer, who was able to actually provide us with the full game uh, here, you can, you can really get the atmosphere through the video. And this is like a 1997 video. Like, I don't think I've ever heard a louder arena on TV. And, you know, all of that historical significance is good and well. But my big takeaway after watching this game, is what a horrible, awful, pointless rule the two-line pass was. I mean, the two-line pass had to be one of the worst things that was ever implemented in hockey. It was a large part of the reason why you had teams actually craft defensive systems to basically take advantage of that. You had the New Jersey Devils uh, kind of create their, their neutral zone trap where they would eff- effectively pressure you know, you right at the... At the at your blue line as your team's trying to break out and basically force you to make a two line pass, they would just stack that the the neutral zone so you couldn't do that, and it was just an awful way to watch hockey. And then at the same time, you had Scotty Bowman in Detroit implement the left wing lock, which again kind of brought that winger up into to pressure in the neutral zone to try and force a two line pass to happen and basically prevent teams from being able to execute. Uh, their stretch passes and execute really full-length breakouts. Max, I'm going to challenge you, though, here. What do you think is the worst rule, um, kind of just on paper? Is it the two-line pass or the rule that's come afterwards with the trapezoid rule and kind of affecting how goalies can handle the puck? Well, I barely remember hockey before the trapezoid rule. So, like, we're talking maybe my very earliest hockey memories are pre-trapezoid, and then there was the lockout, and I think that was when they put the trapezoid in. Yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right in the lockout. Right. So, um, I barely remember hockey without the trapezoid. It's never been something that bothered me, but I don't, like I said, I don't really remember what it was like before. So, uh, now, granted, 
that is also true of the two line pass. I don't remember the two line pass either, but uh, but when I saw it called in this game, I was like, "What? That was a great!" Oh man. Uh, so now I will say, Phil Dehan, uh, one of our uh, one of my Twitter followers, pushed back when I tweeted about how how much I didn't like the two line pass and made the point that uh, the one advantage that it did get rid of the ability for for that stupid uh, dump uh, the effective icing play where you just have a guy get a stick on it and it's really an icing that's a good point um but i just felt like it created so many stoppages it was so much less free flowing the stretch passes aren't there uh so I, like i'm going to stick with my guns and say two line pass but i will acknowledge i don't even know what necessarily the trapezoid was uh was introduced to to get rid of or or what it looked like before really I mean, the trapezoid, let me tell you, the trapezoid is one of the dumbest rules that's ever been made because it was implemented to stop one player, and that was Martin Brodeur. Because uh, if you were to take the two-line pass out of play, what Martin Brodeur would do and what he was so, so good at was he would get out to the corners quickly, he would pick up that puck, and he would make great outlet passes. And he was effectively a third defenseman for the New Jersey Devils, and so they knew that if they could force teams to give up the puck at center ice and dump that puck in, Brodeur was going to be able to skate out to the corner, get to that puck, and then make a great outlet pass to allow New Jersey to kind of start up in transition well before a four-checker could even get in to pressure Brodeur. He was that good. Like, you know, we talk about Hashik and his ability to, to stop the puck and, and his ability to how much better he was than everybody else. Brodeur as a passer with the puck was light years ahead of every other goaltender that's really ever played. And so that basically that rule goes in simply to stop Martin Brodeur. And I think in hindsight, it's had such a detrimental effect because I'm going to make a blanket statement here. Most goalies are awful at playing the puck. In fact, teams should actively try to dump the puck in on the goalie to get the goalie to come out from behind the net to play the puck because I don't trust their decision-making. I don't trust their ability to make a decision with the stick that they have to make or that they have to use. And I also don't trust their ability to even make a clean pass more often than not. I think what you end up seeing a lot of times is, you know, the goalies just throw the puck off the glass and you've really taken away goalie mistakes with the puck, which I think, you know, were such a huge piece to the game. You look at the 2003 Stanley Cup Finals, Mark Chamberdor comes out to play a puck. That puck actually goes off his stick into the back of the net, and that's a goal in the Stanley Cup Finals. You look at Roman Chekmonik, who comes out to, to play the puck, drops his glove as he's bending down to, to pick up the glove. The puck goes in right over his, his shoulder. I think there's so many of those types of examples where goalies make mistakes playing the puck, and it results in pucks in their own net. And those plays have just been eliminated because you've basically prevented goalies from embarrassing themselves. And I just think it's such an awful rule. Yeah. No, I mean, that's fair. Like, I, not knowing the, uh, you know, like, how to necessarily picture that probably impedes me there, but, uh, I can see that. I mean, I can see, like, the, that creates offense in its own way just by the, the turnovers behind the net. So, uh, I could get behind that, uh, getting rid of the trapezoid. I think, uh, you know, right up there with the puck over glass delay a game, uh, and the shootout, uh, those are all amendments I would be more than open to in the, uh, in the modern game. Yeah, and, and just so Red Wings fans are well aware, we really have to blame all of these rules on Brendan Shanahan, who we're going to talk a lot about, because he was part of the committee that organized in the lockout kind of this rules 
committee to, to reevaluate a lot of what was going on. And, and I'm partly going to blame the shootout on him, and I'm also going to blame this goalie trapezoid rule on him because I think they're just two of the worst rules ever. Max, I know you're a big uh, you know advocate against the shootout here, thinking yep. it's a really bad idea. So, you know, with those two rules coming in place from Shanahan, I'm going to... I'm going to pin them right there on him because there's just no reason for this to happen. Like, we, we, we're just missing so many goalie mistakes right now. Yeah, that's absolutely fair. I mean, I, I will say though, like, what, we'll just, let's just get into this right now because one of the things that stood out to me the most about this game is man, was Brendan Shanahan good? Like, not like, I, I, I knew he was a good player. I don't know that I realized he was as good as, as he looked in this game. I think a lot of people, he's a guy that I think flies under the radar for a lot of people. And I noticed that when the Detroit Red Wings social media team tweeted out uh, kind of their version of the historical lineups. You know, you and I did our own version and we solicited input. They tweeted out their own. They made it a little bit more difficult with 16 bucks. But they actually valued Brendan Shanahan as a $3 winger. And I saw a lot of fans not take him. And it was just really, really surprising because... He was sensational, and and yeah. for Wings fans, that that was his first year in Detroit in ninety six ninety seven. You know they went out after losing in ninety five ninety six. They go out, they get Brendan Shanahan uh, right before opening night. He comes in and he actually leads the team in goals that year. He scores forty six goals and and eighty seven points to lead the team in both categories ahead of guys like Eiserman and Fedorov. So he was just as absolutely sensational. He could do everything for the Red Wings. I for sure judged a book by its cover there. Like, I, I knew Brendan Shanahan, big dude, you know, physical kind of player. And I, I just, it would not have occurred to me that he had multiple 50-goal seasons and probably should have had a third 50-goal season in this 96-97 season that we're, that we're talking about today. So, uh, mea culpa on my part to, to Brendan Shanahan. Yeah, I mean, just one of the most underrated wingers, I think, in NHL history. Could really do everything you, you wanted. And, and for the Red Wings in 96-97, he was the missing piece. Uh, that really elevated them to where they needed to go. Yeah. All right. So let's get into this then. Let's. Uh, how about this? You you know the history better than I do. How about you want to set the stage for for what led into this game that was basically a fireworks fest right from the puck drop? Yeah. So for for Red Wings fans who are not entirely familiar with how this got to to where it was, it doesn't really start in the ninety six seven or ninety six ninety seven season. It goes back seasons before that. And so when you're going through Red Wings history. 94-95, it's a lockout year, but the Wings are really, really good. They come in, they make it to the Stanley Cup Finals. They're heavily favored against the New Jersey Devils. They should beat this team, no problem. The Devils sweep the Red Wings in 94-95. And the the playoff MVP, the Smythe winner, it's Claude Lemieux. And so Claude Lemieux is, again, enemy number one in Detroit, but he's not there just yet. But this is kind of the first stages of it. Is he's a, he goes, he wins the Stanley Cup against Detroit. He's the consummate winner. He uses that fame to really lobby into a trade to Colorado, who then moves uh, from Quebec to Colorado in 95-96. And this is now Colorado's inaugural season, um, you know, outside of Quebec. And so he comes down, and, and that's kind of piece number one. And then piece number two that really kind of sparked this rivalry is Patrick Waugh. And so again, you're now in that 95-96 season. The Red Wings are just a historically dominant team. That season, the Wings set the NHL record for wins. They put up 62 wins. They're just crushing everybody. And one of the teams they crushed in 1995 was the Montreal Canadiens. 
And the Montreal Canadiens at that time had Patrick Waugh as their goaltender. You know, he'd won a Stanley Cup with them in 93. Excellent, excellent goaltender. Arguably the best goaltender uh, in the league next to Dominic Hasek at that point. The Wings put up nine goals on Patrick Waugh in that game in, in, in Montreal in December. And, and Waugh's just getting embarrassed at that point. In fact, at one point he makes a save and he celebrates it in his crease. And the Montreal fan cheer, you know, the Montreal crowd cheers for him. Finally, you know, the, the Montreal head coach pulls him uh, after the ninth goal he's given up. It's barely been half the game. Waugh goes over to his general manager and he says, you need to trade me. So a few days later, Patrick Waugh's traded and he goes to Colorado. And so now you've got that, that kind of piece that's sitting with Patrick Waugh. You've got Claude Lemieux there. And in 95-96, the Wings and Avs meet in the Stanley Cup Finals. And again, like we said, the Wings were this juggernaut. They were a 62-win team. They're coming in. They're playing Colorado. But Colorado takes it to them, and Colorado beats them, you know, pretty handily. They beat them 4-2 in game uh, to, to win that series in six games. And that series was just chippy all throughout. Uh, you had game three where uh, kind of Kozlov is uh, going after a lot of people, and Claude Lemieux actually sucker punches uh, Slava Kozlov in that game. And he actually gets himself a one-game suspension, but he's back for game six. And very early in Game 6, again, that game is very chippy. And, and the play everyone remembers is Chris Draper's kind of skating backwards. He's near uh, the boards right in between the benches. And Claude Lemieux comes right behind, boards him face first into the benches. And, and Draper is immediately taken out of the game. He's fractured his orbital bone, his cheekbone, 50-plus uh, stitches. But the, the interesting piece to all of that is, is none of the Red Wings players actually knew how bad Draper was injured. They just knew that he never came back in the game, but... Nobody actually knew how bad he was injured. Uh, Draper himself, there's a great piece in the Players' Tribune uh, titled There Will Be Blood. He talks about, you know, he blacks out. He wakes back up. He's in the locker room. He he remembers, all right, I'm not feeling that much pain. He starts putting on his pads until the trainers show him his face, and he's like, oh, my God. Uh, and so eventually he declines having surgery in Colorado, and he gets on the team plane. You know, the Wings lose that game. They're eliminated the rest of the uh, you know players come out of the plane and they see Draper's face and they're and that's where that Dino Cicerelli quote comes from where he's saying I can't believe I shook that guy's friggin' hand talking about Claude Lemieux because none of them really realized what happened to Draper and so at that point you kind of have the candle lit you have the fires lit but 96 97 rolls around and Claude Lemieux misses the first two games against. Uh, the Red Wings, you know, he's out with an injury both those games. And, and remember, it's taken Draper six months to, to get back to being able to play. He, it took him several weeks before he could even have anything to eat or drink. His jaw was wired shut. I mean, we're talking about a really horrific injury here. And Lemieux misses the first couple of games. Then he plays the, the third game between the two teams in, in, uh, Colorado, but nothing really happens. So Lemieux says, this is all over. And, you know, Colorado wins those first three games of the season. So now you're talking about Colorado's won seven of the last nine against Detroit. Colorado's first in the West at this point. They're 46-19-9 coming into the into the matchup in Detroit. Detroit's really struggled this year. They're only, they're only at 34-23-15 coming into the matchup. Uh, a long way away from 62 wins the year before. And again, Colorado's just got their number. And now you're meeting March 26th. Claude Lemieux is going to be there, and now this is that first game in Detroit, and you could kind of feel the the hype coming into this one. It was just, 
it had been a long time coming, and there was a lot of energy on the Red Wings side coming into this game. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting going back and watching it, you know, I, I, I kind of teased this earlier, like, the goals are just something that I never even seen. So there's like the one off, the first one off the face of Kamensky, I think his name is. Yeah, Valerie Kamensky scores just three and a half minutes into the game on a slap shot right off the face off, Charles. Yeah, and Colorado, I thought, looked really good in this game for a whole lot of this game. Like, I'm watching it was like, how, how on earth is this going to win this game? I honestly, in my head, the way that I would have kind of mentally painted this picture would have had the fight happening late in the game, you know, the, the big brawl, I guess there's fights throughout, uh, the big brawl happening late in the game, swinging momentum, uh, and the Red Wings ride that momentum into the sunset, right? That is not at all how this game went. No, and, and that's the thing about these two teams is a lot of people, you know, remember the fights, remember the brawls. You have to remember these were the two most talented hockey teams for a solid decade. I mean, you look at 94-95, Detroit's in the Stanley Cup Finals. 95-96, Colorado wins. 96-97, 97-98, Detroit wins. You know, 98-99's an outlier where Dallas wins. Um, and then 2000, New Jersey beats Colorado. And you've got 2001, Colorado wins. 2002, Detroit wins. You know, 2003, New Jersey. And then, again, this was that era where those three teams really were the dominant teams and and these were so such highly skilled teams but really right from the get-go you saw a lot of skill but you saw the fights just consistent this was going to be a chippy one right from the start Patrick Waugh was unbelievable I mean I say I, I say I don't know how the Red Wings came back and won that's mostly to do with the score like they had sustained a ton of pressure throughout this game Waugh was outstanding I thought he had like 40 saves or something like that uh and and you know Early in the game, when when the first fights start happening, uh, I think the first one was like Jamie Pusher or something like that, like five minutes in. Uh, and then a little bit later than that, you get uh, Malpe and, and uh, Rene Corbett. Is that his name? Yeah, yeah, Rene Corbett. And then it's not until the very end of the first period where, and again, here comes Brendan Shanahan in, into this. So, so you get the Lariana fighting Peter Forsberg. McCarty takes that as his opportunity to go after uh, Claude Lemieux. And Wah is going to take uh, McCarty off of Lemieux, and Shanahan intercepts him. That is a pl- that is a, a moment of that fight that I don't think I necessarily always gave enough credence to either. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the most unbelievable fights that you— I mean, I don't even know that you could script it really this way. I mean, it starts off with Larry Onoff and Forsberg. And again, this right. is a guy not who's— Not fighters. <laughs> right, not fighters. But you have, this is a guy whose the nickname is The Professor, and then Peter Forsberg, one of the most skilled players to ever play the game. These are the two guys who are going at it to start. And then, obviously, all hell breaks loose. And and you've got Shanahan and Foote. You've got McCarty going after Lemieux. And, and the best part about this is when you're watching this game on ESPN, number one, I'm reminded of, of how phenomenal Gary Thorne and Bill Clement were as announcers. I mean, they were the perfect people uh, to have calling this game on national TV. You also had the Detroit local announcers, who I don't think did as good of a job because it was the gap year before Ken Daniels actually started for, for Wings fans. And, and I don't think the announcer really framed it. And, and another fun trivia piece is Mickey Redman was in the elevator uh, coming down to do a between-the-benches interview and missed the entire brawl, which is why you don't hear him at all on the Red Wings broadcast. But, you know, you've, you've got McCarty now pummeling Lemieux at center ice. Lemieux goes into the turtle. That's why it's called Happy Turtle Day because he's just trying to protect himself. But 
McCarty was later quoted afterwards saying, I was trying to hurt the guy. And, and he was throwing punches at him. He was trying to knee him. He actually drags him over to the bench so that his teammates can see the blood. But then you've got Wall coming out to try and protect Lemieux. And that's when just Shanahan and Wall go to this flying tackle. And that's just one of the best parts about this fight. It is a very primal thing happening there, right? Like, it's like you're... You're trying to get, like, uh, some measure of vengeance, and like, like you said, if you drag a guy over to the bench, you're, like, showing your teammates, like, look what I did, look what I did for us, whatever. Uh, very raw, visceral uh, emotions happening in that whole thing, and and from it, just some pretty iconic, I mean, the Vernon Waugh is obviously the, the standard bearer for all goalie fights. One of our uh, listeners DM me making the point that they didn't even come out to fight each other. They were both involved separately and independently, and only when they kind of both realized that they're they're both out there do they end up going at it like it's not the goalie fight that i think I, now you think of as the kind of what how a goalie fight works as guys are fighting the goalies look at each other from across the ice and they meet at center this was not that at all yeah and, and you know one of the fascinating things about uh all of this is i i really think patrick wall had been wanting to fight someone for a while and and i think it actually all goes back and i believe it was sean mcindoe uh, who made this point several years ago when he wrote a blog about this fight uh, that back in 1989 Wah was in net when ron hextall came out of the net and actually went after chris chelios who was at that time patrick Wah's teammate on the montreal canadians and and why you can see him if you go back and watch that video starts to come out of the net he looks like he's going to get himself engaged but then he doesn't he hedges and, and Sean McIndoe makes the point that, uh, you know, maybe Wah was always regretting not doing that. And so now at this point, you've got Darren McCarty beating the crap out of Claude Lemieux at center ice. Lemieux's full turtle. And so this point, I think Wah's just like, yeah, I gotta go. I'm going at this point. And at the same time, you're saying Brendan Shanahan realized that Wah is gonna come and try and go after McCarty and potentially blindside him. And so Shanahan's like, I'm not gonna let that happen. And he just launches right into Patrick Waugh, and then you've got Adam Foote pulling Pat, you know, Shanahan away from Waugh, but at the same time you've got you know, uh, Mike Vernon coming out to actually get involved, uh, and, and at that point I think they both realized, they're like, oh, we're both out of the net, we're here, we're going to go, and this was honestly the most iconic fight I think I've ever seen. I never realized that uh, Waugh did not get a fighting penalty on that play, but, oh, he did, never mind. Yeah, so, so the, that was one of the best things about all of this is when you're looking at the brawl, you're saying, alright, you've got Larry Onoff and Forsberg, you got McCarty and Lemieux, you got Wah and Vernon, later you have Shanahan and Foot go, you have Nick Lidstrom just standing on the ice going, I don't really know what's happening, and he's just the perfect guy to have standing there going, I don't really know what you want me to do at this point, but I'm just gonna stand here and watch, uh, cause he's, you know, the other Red Wing that's on the ice not really sure what to do. But when you look at the penalty minutes from this brawl, there were only 22 penalty minutes handed out. Darren McCarty doesn't get a fighting major. He gets four <laughs> minutes for roughing. The only fighting major that's handed out is Waugh and Vernon, and then they each get an extra two for leaving the crease. But Igor Konstantinov and Deadmarsh got, right. got him too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Konstantinov and Deadmarsh, although I think that fight happens like 17 seconds later. Oh, but okay. In, in, in that actual brawl, it's just Juan Vernon who get a fighting major. You get Larianoff and Forsberg with roughing majors, uh, or roughing penalties, minor penalties. And then you get McCarty who gets four minutes for roughing. And in hindsight, if, if that game happens 
today, you're talking about McCarty getting tossed, Juan Vernon getting tossed, potentially Shanahan getting tossed, and you're going, how does that happen? And, and again, Sean McIndoe had a, had a great blog about this a few years ago with the Senators and, and Flyers line brawl that happened uh, several years back. There were 400 penalty minutes out of that game. But there were only 22 penalty minutes on that fight and only 148 penalty minutes for the game. And I say only because, again, in, in retrospect, if you're looking at that game in today's standards, there is no way there should have been only 148 penalty minutes and only 22 penalty minutes in that specific brawl. Like, uh, I had an Avs fan make this point to me, which I think is a very valid point. If Darren McCarty is tossed from the game, as he rightly should have been, and I don't think Wings fans should disagree, that he should have been tossed from the game. He went after a player who was not able to protect himself, beat the crap out of him, a guy who was defenseless, although it was Claude Lemieux, and dragged him to the boards, tried to knee him, admitted to trying to injure him later. That's a guy who should be tossed out of the game. But if, if McCarty's tossed from the game, potentially the whole outcome of this game has changed, as well as how the Red Wings dynasty ends up unfolding. Yeah, I think that's possible. I mean, I, I certainly don't think McCarty was like the only person capable of scoring uh, the overtime winner. So I think it's certainly, but you know, there is probably an emotional element to it as well. And uh, McCarty has another fight, you know, not not too long after that. He might have fought Dead Marsh, maybe something like that, um, in, the, in the second period. But yeah, I could not believe how early this happened in retrospect. I mean, you still have to play two periods after that, and I almost like wonder how how do they avoid getting emotionally hijacked. They're going into the first down one to zero. This game still has 10 goals left to be scored in it. Right. I mean, you're, it's literally one zero and this is happening with a minute and a half to go in the first. And you're just like, how do you come back and play 40 minutes? Like, how do you even regroup? And, and to the wings credit, they did regroup quite well because, uh, you know, less than a minute into the second period, Fedorov's able to come out and actually tie the game uh, at one to one for the Red Wings. And, and potentially you think they're getting some momentum going off of that brawl. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, it just, they weren't able to sustain it throughout that second period. And, and the Avs, again, as skilled as they were, we forget how good the Avs were. I mean, with Forsberg and, and Sackick, obviously Hall of Famers, you know, Lemieux, even though he's a, he's, he's enemy number one in Detroit, he wins at Cons Mike. He's a extremely talented player. Uh, for years, the wings were killed by Valerie Kamensky because he was just a big-time goal scorer uh, for them. And then obviously Patrick Juanette was just a huge piece and, and Adam Foote on the back end along with, uh, you know, Sandus Ozelinch. Those guys were two big uh, guys for the ass for years and years and years. And these are the defending champs and they're coming right at Detroit. And, you know, they, they continue to put the wings in a, in a tough spot. I mean, uh, at the end of the second, even though the wings are you know, given it all they've got, I mean, you've got more fighting majors, you've got Shanahan Foot going for real, uh, you got Aaron Ward and Mike Keane going, uh, you get Brent Severin who's, who's going in another fight, um, you know, you get McCarty and, and, uh, Deadmarsh finally go at it, because uh, Deadmarsh wants McCarty to pay. All that being said, it's still, the Avs are up four to three at the end of the second period. Yeah. No. Okay. You mentioned Fedorov and it peaked something in my brain. I did not know that he ever played def- – like, he took shifts on defense in this game. I did not know that ever happened. Yeah, this is actually one of the first games where Scotty Bowman, um, you know, started the game with him as a defenseman. And there's a great Scotty Bowman quote out there, um, for those of you that remember it, saying, if I had played Sergei Fedorov at defenseman for an entire season, he would have won the Norris. 
And and that's because I think people forget how good Sergei Fedorov was at all facets of the game. Remember, this guy's the Hart Trophy winner in 93-94. Just an absolutely sensational player all around. He could skate like nobody's business, but his defensive awareness was off the charts. He truly was Pavel Datsuk before Pavel Datsuk. He had a little bit less flair in the sense of not bigger. having the same stick handling, but he's a bigger player, a faster player, and he's just as skilled, if not more skilled. And so he really was Datsuk before Datsuk, and, and we just haven't really appreciated that in modern times, but he was an absolutely unreal uh, player, and, and that's why he could do that. He could take shifts on defense, and, and you know Detroit had the luxury of doing that when you have players like Iserman and Shanahan, and, and you have the grind line who's able to score for you. Um, you've got Igor Larionov. You have a lot of talent up front where they could do that in situations. Now, Fedorov was coming off uh, Selkie wins in two of the last three seasons at, at the time of this game. He ends up finishing ninth in Selkie voting in this season. But I would submit, if your coach is uh, playing you at, at at defense during games at, as a forward who has multiple 100-point seasons on his resume, I would submit that uh, you win the Selkie trophy by default. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing about Fedorov. You know, that's a great point you mentioned about his Selkie trophies. Like, 93-94, I mentioned he wins the heart as MVP, but he also wins the Lester B. Pearson, uh, most outstanding player. He also wins the Selkie that year. Like, how many players win the MVP and best defensive forward in the same season? Like, it's just, it doesn't happen. And then again, in, in 95-96, when the Wings are winning 62 games, he's he's fifth in Hart Trophy voting, and he wins the Selkie again. It's just, he was a truly exceptional hockey player. Yeah. All right, let's wrap the game then. Well, not quite wrap, but let's get into the comeback because they're down four to two at one point, uh, late in the second period, I believe, and uh, or early in the third, maybe early in the third. They're down five three, so they're down four two. Then Lidstrom scores, and they end up in the third period. Colorado scores early. They're down five three with like eighteen minutes to go. How do they make it? Uh, make the comeback just to force overtime? Yeah, I mean, this is the this is the turning point for the Red Wings. Remember. Like we said, you know, the Avs are the defending champs coming into this game. The Avs are 3-0 and against Detroit, and they've won seven, and seven of the last nine. So the Wings just didn't have the psychological mojo to beat this team until the comeback kicks in. And really, the comeback kicks in when you get a great goal from Martin Lapointe to get things started. And then 36 seconds later, uh, you get Brendan Shanahan scoring again. We've talked about how good Shanahan was for the Red Wings, and this was another huge goal. It was a weird one that Patrick Wild would ultimately like to have back. But nonetheless, 10 minutes to go in the game, and the game is now tied 5-5. And the best part about this game was, unlike hockey today, where if you've got a tie game with 10 minutes left, you're going to see the two teams basically kind of play for overtime, knowing that they're going to try and get to the shootout. That didn't happen here. These two teams went at it for the final 10 minutes, and there were great chances traded back and forth, back and forth. But ultimately, you know, Mike Vernon, Patrick Waugh, they stand tall, and they get the they get both their teams to overtime. And then obviously for, for McCarty to be the one who, who scores the overtime winner, I mean, so here, here's like a little look in, behind the curtain here of how the three stars of an NHL game are awarded currently. I don't know if it was like this at the time, but they bring you basically a paper ballot. There's like one person who's who's assigned to pick the three stars. And with about five, six minutes left in the game, so before – it's even over, uh, you are told to pick the three stars. 
most of the time, if it's a tie game or a close game, what will happen is there will either be like a contingency ballot. If, if team, team A wins, put this guy number one, two, three. And if team B wins, it's this way. Uh, but sometimes, and, and I do this fairly often, if there's a, if there's a close game, you just put number one game winning goal. And I don't know how it would have been done 23 years ago or whatever, but I almost wonder if, that is what happened, is that they said number one star is, is game-winning goal because, you know, McCarty scores in overtime, he goes out. But how perfect it is for him with the emotional side of winning the fight, I, it's possible that they put him number one anyway just for that, I guess. But I honestly think it's possible that it was just number one star game-winning goal and McCarty gets that victory lap with everything uh, going on in the background almost by accident. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing about this is, like, it could not have been scripted better. Like, this was this was the way you wanted it to go. And, and you know, truth be told, I have no idea how they did the stars of the game, but it really couldn't be any per, any more perfect than McCarty gets that victory lap. And this was really the season where Darren McCarty kind of solidified himself as a member of Red Wings history and, a, and really a true franchise icon because... He goes out in this game. He wins that fight against Lemieux. And by wins that fight, I mean he pummels Claude Lemieux at center ice. He scores the game-winning goal here. And then in the 97 playoffs, he scores the cup-clinching goal on an inside-outside move on Yanni Ninema and just completely embarrasses him in one of the greatest goals that's ever been scored in Stanley Cup playoff history. This was that season. This was that moment. This is why I have three pictures of Darren McCarty hanging up in my house because this is that game and this is what he does and just the most perfect ending and it ends up being a a 6-5 overtime victory over the number one team in the NHL, the defending Stanley Cup champions, the team that knocked you out last year, the team that was 3-0 against you on the season and that was the psychological difference I think for the Red Wings. Does not even end up being the best goal in McCarty's career, which is shocking when you watch the game happen. I mean, that's the thing is you, you watch this game and you're like, wow, that's one of the greatest goals he's ever scored. But he beats it three months later when he scores that goal against the Flyers. And I still have my hockey card of McCarty in mid-move on Yanni Ninema. You see Ninema on the ice. You've got McCarty pulling it to his backhand. I can still visualize the Gary Thorne call at this point. I have that hockey card and that hangs in my house along with a signed picture of him and then another signed picture of him. So... You know, the guy really solidified himself uh, as a member of Red Wings, you know, franchise history as an icon uh, with this game. And it was just truly one of the greatest goals I think has ever been scored uh, by a Red Wings player. Yeah, it was a great game, great finish. Everything about it was really cool uh, to go back and, and see with, with kind of fresh eyes for a lot of it. Obviously, I've seen the, the brawl everybody by this point has, but uh, really, really cool to see uh, all of that play out and, and kind of feel a little bit of, of where so much of the Red Wing tradition, like you said, started um, for all this. I mean, I, I, you said it kind of gives them the psychological advantage. What do you think happens if they don't win this game? You know, that's the thing, because they meet Colorado in the Western Conference Finals, and do they have the the mentality to beat the Avalanche if the Avalanche sweep the season series on them, if they are now, you know, winning 8 of 10 against the Red Wings? I truly don't think so, and, and you have to remember, when you're looking at this point in time in Red Wings history, the Red Wings were razor thin to blowing this team up and to completely restarting. Remember, it, after the Wings lose in 95... That's when you have the rumored Steve Eisman for Alexi Yashin trade to Ottawa. And that almost happens. But the Wings decide to stick with it. And then the Wings 
get through the 95-96 season, but they lose to the Avs, and they make huge changes. Out goes Paul Coffey, out goes Keith Primo, in comes Brendan Shanahan, in comes Larry Murphy. You know, you've got a lot of changes happening. Mike Vernon is now the playoff starter. You know, the Wings make these sweeping changes. If they lose again to Colorado, there's a chance none of this happens. And so I think this game truly was one of, if not the most important game in the Red Wings franchise history, in Red Wings franchise history, essentially. Like, if this game goes differently, I don't know that you have 97 go the way it goes. I don't know that you have 98 go the way it goes. And I ultimately, you don't know what that means for 2002 when the Wings load up again and, and, and go for another cup run. So I truly believe this was one of the most impactful games in Red Wings history. Yeah, really fascinating to go back and, and watch it for that reason. I will say, actually I will ask, what time did this game end when it was live? You know, to be quite honest, I can't remember when it ended. I would imagine it was probably around 10.30 because it would have been a 7.30 start. Yeah, I mean, it's gotta be late. It's gotta be, it's gotta be like 11 beyond that because number one, it's an overtime game. Number two, I rewatched yeah. the 09 Cup final the other day and it was like an hour and a half of the, of the same style of, of cuts where it's just, you know, you, you don't really get a whole lot between the whistles. It's just, you're just kind of watching play unless there's something really interesting happening. This was like a two and a half hour production. And I think a lot of it is just because of all the times figuring out the, the, the penalties after fights and all that stuff. Like it was, it was fascinating. I, this must have been a absolute marathon to watch live. Yeah, I'm trying to remember because it was somewhere probably between 10.30 and 11. I'm really reaching back here, but it was about a three-hour game when you factored in the commercials and, and things like that. It was probably somewhere between three, three and a half hours. And it's one of the longest games I remember like sticking all the way through for. You know, this is right up there with the 2002 uh, Cup Finals uh, Game 3 when the Wings go to triple overtime against Carolina. This is one of the games I remember like staying up, watching every second because you're, you're hanging on to every moment of this hockey game. Yeah, absolutely. Anything else, any other points you want to make about this before we uh, we move on to the listener questions? Yeah, I mean, the best part about this is there's also a lot of other significance to it. And I think the other yeah. points to remember is Mike Knubel, who goes on to be a great NHL hockey player, this is his first NHL game. And you're just like, man, this is your first NHL game. What a treat <laughs> to like be in there for that. And and Knubel goes on to have a great career uh, with the Flyers, with the Red Wings, you know, a lot of stuff. And then this is also Mike Vernon's 300th career win. And so a lot of milestones achieved here, a lot of historical significance. This truly was one of the most amazing hockey games that has ever been played in the last 30, 40 years. Absolutely. Well, I'm sure everyone out there will let us know if we missed anything of, uh, of major note or if there's anything that stood out to them. I don't know. I'm sure a lot of people went back and rewatched this one this week with it being the uh, 23rd anniversary of it. So let us know if we missed anything important. And obviously, we love hearing from you guys, uh, as always. Shall we get to the listener questions? Yeah, let's take them. All right, so we've got uh, a few today, not a massive number, but uh, Henry says, assuming the Red Wings get a compliance buyout, which, to be clear, that is still very much an assumption at this point, would it be worth considering buying out another team's player for a price? Like, what if Toronto temporarily uh, trades the Red Wings' Marner, they buy him out, allowing him to resign for league minimum and return the Red Wings in a major package? All right, let's just uh, cut that last part off. That's not going to happen. But assuming that there are compliance buyouts, would it be worth considering trading uh, for someone with the idea of buying that player out? Yeah, I mean, that's, again, a, another great way to use the compliance buyouts. You know, you have to think from Detroit's perspective, um, 
you have two candidates already. You have Justin Abdelkader and you have Franz Nielsen. Uh, theoretically, you could throw Danny DeKaiser in the mix, but I don't think Detroit's in any position to buy him out, even though I think his contract's a bit above market value right now. That being said, the Franz Nielsen deal doesn't have a lot of term left on it. You've got one more year left. And so is that worthwhile to buy out versus maybe you take on a contract? Like, let's say Florida is like, you know what? Uh, I want to use two other buyouts because... They signed Mike Matheson to an eight-year deal, and they signed somebody else that they want to buy out, but they need to deal Sergei Bobrovsky, and they need to be able to buy him out. And so, yeah, you could certainly entertain that idea. The important thing to remember is by buying them out, um, you know, I still don't believe that they would be able to then go back and re-sign with the team that initially traded them. That, I don't know if that'll be stipulated in the rules. It's Technically, you can't re-sign with the team that bought you out. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how the league actually addresses that. Um, but that being said, I do think it's a very interesting uh, idea and another unique way the Wings could use it because I don't think it's of the utmost importance that you buy out Franz Nielsen. But I think Justin Applicator is a lot more important. So you could use one of those spots to acquire, and I think a team like Florida is a good one to pick on. Well, let's say they only get one, right? Like, I'm imagining they're only going to, if there's compliance buyouts, I mean, it's still very much enough if there are any. But, like, I imagine there's probably going to be two, are there? I don't know. I mean, in, in the last lockout, at least, they gave uh, they gave two compliance buyouts. I would hope that they would follow a similar procedure. But if not, even if you got the one... I think the assets you gain from a deal with Florida to get, you know, potentially Keith Yandel, who they've got for three more years at basically six and a half million, Mike Matheson, uh, you know, Sergey Bravovsky is obviously the big bad contract that they've got right now. But Florida's done very poorly um, from a cap structure, cap space perspective. They're a team that I would absolutely pick on. And sure, I would keep Justin Applicator around because the cap hits relatively low and it's manageable in a time where Detroit's not super competitive um, to say, yeah, let's uh, let's take somebody else's player and the assets that they give us uh, and use the buyout there. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I, I still think, you know, what's probably more likely to happen there is teams, I mean, the Panthers are a great example. They're one that I certainly could see being in that situation. I think most teams uh, are going to have few enough really bad contracts that they're not going to need to trade major assets. So I think you're weighing, you know, what kind of assets you get, um, in order to do something like that. But, um, you know, I, I think for the Red Wings getting, if they were able to get out from under the abdicator contract and then just even play one more season out of the Nielsen one, uh, then they'd be able to buy that out fairly painlessly, I think. So that ultimately a compliance buyout could be a huge deal for the Red Wings here. Yeah, I completely agree. Like, I think it would be a massive uh, piece for the Wings moving forward. Yep. All right. Uh, all right. Uh, also, like, while we're on this conversation, like, this isn't a question, but I think it's worth talking about what a diminished salary cap means for um, the Red Wings potentially next season. Like, there, there's the possibility to kind of artificially inflate the cap and agree on it. Uh, obviously, it's going to mean high escrow. But let's say it doesn't decrease all. Let's say it just stays at $81 million. What are the major implications of that for a team like the Red Wings? I think for the Red Wings, that's a that basically mandates that they have to be aggressive with the cap space that they have. Um, obviously, they have a lot of contracts to deal with this offseason. They have a lot of roster spots to deal with. Not everybody's going to be back. We know Anthony Mantha uh, should be back. We know Tyler Bertuzzi should be back. 
Rodney Fabry will likely be back. Everybody else is likely up in the air. And so while the Wings do have a few spots to fill in, um, they're not going to need to do that with a ton of money. Like if, if we use your latest article, Max, and we say we give $7 million to to Anthony Mantha and we give $5.5 million to Tyler Bertuzzi, I'm going to just pick those two numbers, and you take their now $12.5 million and you add it to the projected cap that the Wings have, uh, which is right now $46 million, you're talking about the Wings you know, sitting somewhere around $59 million for cap it. Even if you decide to operate with the same salary cap, which is 81 and a half right now, that leaves you still more than $20 million to one, make the moves that you can make because uh, the Wings will need another goaltender. They'll likely need another defenseman and they'll need a couple of forwards depending on how they choose to do their promotions. Uh, that being said, I think it's conceivable Detroit still has around $10 million in cap space um, you know, by the time that's all said and done, even if you're operating with an $81.5 million cap hit. So I think you have to be very aggressive about calling other teams, asking about their bad contracts, asking how you want to get out of that money, um, especially if there's that compliance buyout available. I think it puts more pressure on the wings to weaponize that cap space. Yeah, I think that's a good point, and I, th- I think it's going to put other teams in a much worse position than it would put the Red Wings in. So uh, I think very interesting implications, including what it potentially means for even just the negotiation on a Manta or Bertuzzi. If you know that the cap is $3 million less, you could potentially shave a couple hundred thousand dollars off those salaries, too, um, just because of the percentage of cap. So we'll lead right into there from, with, from a question from Brady is, do you see Manta's price tag pushing $7 million a year? My answer is yes. My answer is going to be no, and I'm going to go with the Steve Eiserman factor. I think for whatever reason, he consistently gets guys to sign under market value. And while this is the first real offseason we're going to see him making, uh, you know, big time negotiations, last offseason he didn't really have a lot of players to deal with, was able to bring in Patrick Nemeth, Valtteri Filippo on reasonable deals. I, you know, when you look at what he did with Braden Point, you look at what he did with Steven Stamkos, what he did with Victor Hedman, what he did with Nikita Kucherov. You have to wonder if he leverages those types of situations saying, hey, look at what I built in Tampa by being able to get guys like Kucherov and Point, although Point wasn't necessarily him, um, but by getting those guys to buy in at slightly under market value. If you commit that to me, I can build a contending team around you and and basically and do it here. And so part of me wonders if you're going to see Mantha come in you know, five hundred to seven hundred fifty thousand under market value, and same with Bertuzzi. And if you're able to get those guys aggregate at eleven and a half million, I think you're looking at a huge win. Um, and I'm kind of thinking that's where it's going to land. Well, that'd be a huge deal uh, if, if that's what it is. And it wouldn't stop. It wouldn't shock me for the exact reason that you're you're talking about. I mean, here's a quote that I got from Stephen Stamkos about a year and a half ago uh, when the Red Wings were in Tampa. This was not that long after Eisenman had announced he was stepping down from the GM role there, and obviously the rumors had already begun about um, potentially Detroit. But at the time, it was all still very much kind of a, a daydream for, for Red Wings fans. So here's what Stamkos said. 
about his kind of negotiation uh, with Eisner, which ended up being eight and a half million times eight, which was under market, like you're alluding to. He said, part of the culture we have here in Tampa is kind of that team first mentality. And if you want to keep a good team together, guys are going to have to make little sacrifices along the way, whether that's in terms of money or term or ice time or role on the team. That's something that's kind of non-negotiable on this team in terms of doing whatever it takes to help keep the core together and keep being a productive team. Message was pretty loud and clear early when Steve got here and established himself as GM and continued to be that way. That speaks very clearly to your point, and I absolutely think that is the approach Eisenman will take. Is it easy to do when you're not doing that? On you know, by that time, the Lightning were already a very good team in, in that Stamkos contract uh, negotiation. But he makes the point that was the message early. This is kind of the precedent-setting opportunity for something like that. So uh, we'll see what that means. Does it mean you know? I, I don't think they can afford to go short with this contract, uh, as I wrote. I think it has to be either middle term or long term from the Red Wings standpoint. Uh, if Eiserman's able to get Mantha, you know, lower than seven, it, you know, I, I think that obviously would be uh, a, a win for the Red Wings. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. And again, like, I think he's going to lean on the culture that he built in Tampa, and I think he's going to lean on the Red Wings culture. If you look back, I mean, when the Wings were super competitive in the middle, kind of the middle of the two thousands, there was this running mantra from Ken Holland that. No one was going to get paid more than Nick Lidstrom. And that even applied all the way down to Marion Hossa, to Henrik Zetterberg, and to Pavel Datsuk. No one was getting more money than Nick Lidstrom. And you were just going to fall in line, and you were going to do that. And while that's great from a team perspective, and it's pretty poor from a player perspective, ultimately that's what happened, is people just fell in line, and they they took well under value. I mean, you look at Datsuk and, and Zetterberg's contract, they were always well under what they those guys could have gotten on the open market. And so I just wonder if, if Eiserman's going to point back to that culture, point back to what he did in Tampa and say, we're going to come in under, you know, what people think you're valued at. Yeah. All right, this one's on theme, this next one uh, for today's episode. Socially and emotionally distant Joe asks... Is Darren McCarty's overtime goal against Colorado the most important goal for the Red Wings dynasty? Oh, that's a that's such a great question. And to be quite honest, I think the answer is yes. Uh, like I said, I mean, you can get into all of the what-ifs you want to play, but if McCarty, if the Wings don't beat Colorado in that game, and that's on McCarty's overtime goal, I have a hard time seeing them have that emotional ability to overcome Colorado when they see them again in the playoffs. I think Colorado was in Detroit's head. There's a great interview, um, you know, with Malti Osgood and I believe it was McCarty was, or Draper was the third member of the interview where they talked about how Colorado was in their head and, and they knew it. And so they talk about how important that that goal was. In fact, there are stories in the Russian Five and in, and in other books that have been about this uh, game where the, the Wings players, number one, after they win that game, they all pour off the bench and they come to celebrate that goal. And then second, after the game actually ends, a lot of them stayed in the locker room to rewatch the highlights of that game and of that goal. And I, I really think that's what got Detroit's game into gear and that's what allowed them to basically overcome Colorado in the Western Conference Finals. And I think if that doesn't happen, you're talking about rewriting 97. Who knows what happens in the 97 offseason um, in terms of players leaving. Uh, it may impact how the Wings handle Sergei Fedorov's contract dispute uh, in 98. I mean, I just think there's so many ramifications that come from that that it's hard to really quantify how important that goal is. And that's why I think it is... Without a doubt, 
the most important goal. I think the other one that's right up there is the 2002, uh, it's game three, second period, Nick Lidstrom scores from center ice on Dan Cloutier. Uh, wings are down 2-0 in that series against Vancouver. Uh, they were the number one seed. They should have won that series handily. That's the other one because that got the Wings to win four consecutive against the Canucks and go on to win a Stanley Cup. I think that's also up there, but no, I, I think the McCarty goal is the most important goal in Red Wings his, in recent Red Wings franchise history. All right, and then we'll close up with Ray Brzezinski, who says, in 10 years, what trio would you rather have? Philip Zadina, Moritz Seider, and your pick of the uh, 2020 forwards who could plausibly be be available at, let's say, fourth overall, uh, or Quinn Hughes, Trevor Zegras, and Jamie Drysdale. Oh, that's tough. I think, you know, you know, it's it's tough because you already know what Quinn Hughes is going to be. You've gotten to see the most of him of any of those players at this mm-hmm. point in time, right? You've seen a little bit of Philip Zadina. You, you can definitely see the skills there, um, but you haven't gotten the same extended look that you have with Quinn Hughes. Uh, Trevor Zegers obviously had a phenomenal uh, World Junior Championships, and he's had a phenomenal season overall in the NCAA this year. I think he's going to be an outstanding player. He was really high in my rankings last year. Um, Jamie Drysdale I'm less enthused about. Uh, you know, for all the reasons that I've stated on previous podcast episodes. Um, and if you're comparing Drysdale potentially to a guy like Marco Rossi or even Alexi Lafreniere, I think if either one of those guys is in that wings bucket with Zadina, um, you know, insider, I think I lean the wings bucket. Uh, that being said, I think at this point in time with the unknown of what that draft pick is going to be, uh, I probably would take uh, the Quinn Hughes, um, Trevor Zegris, and Jamie Drysdale at this point? Yeah, it's an interesting question because I think there, there's multiple ways. For me, I do it where I kind of line guys up and I say, okay, right. would I rather have Zegris or Zadina? Would I rather have Hughes, Sider? Would I rather have Drysdale or the pick? But there's another way you can do it that I think makes it even more interesting, which is Zadina, Zegris. Um, you know, I think a lot of people out there would say Zegris, and they might be right. Uh, but I'd also say that you haven't seen Zegris as a pro yet. And I think, you know, if Philip Zadina had gone back to the queue and lit it up uh, in a fashion that he likely would have the year after the Red Wings drafted him, uh, you know, he could have a similar, he could have had a similar amount of hype around him surrounding, uh, you know, entering his, his second, his draft plus two year. Uh, the only real comparison there you can make is their second World Juniors, which Zegris already obviously had a better uh, draft plus one World Juniors than Zadina, but the year before, Zadina had had a better World Juniors uh, than I think any of those with like with a goal per game. So um, I think that's interesting. I could I could hear an argument that Zegers' World Juniors were better, but I think that's close at the very least. Uh, I think if you make it Hughes Cider, it's obviously going to be Hughes. But if you make it Cider Drysdale, I think you're probably going to take Cider there. So then you're saying Quinn Hughes, or let's say the fourth pick in the 2020 draft. He was obviously went seventh in his draft, but I think he probably should have gone like second or third, probably third. Uh, I'll take the Hughes-Zegris-Drysdale bucket, but narrowly. Yeah, I think narrowly is probably the right way to put it because if you line it up the way you just said, like I don't think the difference between Zadina and Zegris at this point is substantial. And I think if you go Cider versus Drysdale, I think you're going to lean Cider. And then if you're looking at, again, the fourth pick overall – if that fourth pick is Marco Rossi, who again I've been, you know, yelling about for months, I think Rossi has the potential to be the second best player in this draft class, just like Quinn Hughes 
in his draft class. So if you line it up that way, you know, you can make an argument that that's the way to go with the Zadina, Cider, and fourth pick overall bucket. Um, but either way, I think whichever group you take, it's very narrowly going in that direction. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. And certainly, you know, we say this now, it, things could look extraordinarily different in, in, in three years, let alone ten, you know? Yeah, I mean, we just don't know at this point, especially with Zadina and this fourth overall pick, and even Trevor Zegers, you just don't know a lot. We haven't seen Cider at the NHL level. This is, again, an evolving uh, projection. All right, that's going to do it for us today. We'll be back at you guys in the middle of this week. Let us know what you want to hear about. We're still compiling some topics. Right now, I think we're, we're hoping to do a draft episode, but if there's something else you guys really want us to talk about uh, in the um, in the upcoming episode, whether it's this week or, or beyond, just let us know. Uh, but hang in there through all this. Stay safe, and we'll talk to you later this week. <laughs>